You know, I just thought of um, the apostles deposited their teaching in the Bible. You know, the, to say that they deposited in the church, like uh, Matt Swain would take his millions of dollars down to a bank and put it in there. And therefore, if you want Matt's money, well, I can give you his account number and you can just go get it like any any I'm hacker. A, where, where I know what I'm doing as soon as this episode is over. <laughs> <laughs> gonna get you're gonna get a uh, life lock. I'm gonna change some <laughs> anyway. things around. Well, hello, and welcome to another mind-altering episode of On the Journey as we continue our discussion of Christian authority, uh, scripture, tradition, and magisterium, and the like. And if you are enjoying this series, or even if you're not, but you want to engage with it further because you like it or because you don't, either way, we would love for you to come visit us at chnetwork.org, subscribe to this YouTube channel, and especially if you want to talk uh, at a level that is well beyond like the troll level, that's more of like the actual engagement level. Come visit us in the online community at community.chnetwork.org. Uh, in the meantime, we're glad you're here. I'm Matt Swaim, along with my colleague Ken Hensley. And uh, Ken, how are you doing? I'm doing great, and I I think that we should uh, make a public service announcement though that when you said mind altering, you know, we're not in any way you know condoning. No. Of course not. We're condoning the use of theology and apologetics as mind-altering. Right. I should say face-altering because, you know, last episode I had a very large beard, uh, and now That's it is true. gone. Now it is it is as the flesh of a newborn child. Uh, <laughs> and I do yeah. want to point out, you know, Ken, Ken you were there. Uh, I did shave off half of it yeah. uh, for our, uh, our most recent staff meeting because it was the Feast of St. Philip Neri, and St. Philip Neri was known to have shaved yep. half of his beard off and run around town. But as a joke, as a, as a joke. joke, as yeah. a joke. Well, the joke is over. Let the let the seriousness begin as we recap uh, and get going on what the uh, sec- what the what the concept of authority looked like in the church after the New Testament, because that's where we left off last week. That's right. OK, we've been looking uh, at the pattern of authority that we find in Scripture. That's when moving through the Old Testament to the new and then beyond. First, we looked at the Old Testament. And we saw that during the time of Old Covenant Israel, authority in the lives of God's people was a three-legged stool. Um, it resided in Scripture. It resided in the oral uh, teaching of the prophets. And it also resided in an authoritative magisterium that was comprised of, you know, of priests, Levites, high priests, judges, kings, and, and so forth, various times, various places. Now, sometimes... And in some forms, the authority of this magisterium in the Old Testament, that is the authority that this magisterium might have had to interpret the Word of God and apply the Word of God, was an infallible authority. Most often, though, it wasn't an infallible authority, yet it was always binding. That is, the decision that you receive from the judge or from the high priest was binding. Among Old Covenant Israel, in other words, there was no, well, I'll study the Torah, and I'll decide for myself. There was no sola scriptura on a practical level and the right of private judgment. Last week, you and I looked at the pattern of authority in the New Testament church, that is, during the time of the apostles, and we found the same, I mean, essentially the same three-legged stool. Scripture was authoritative. The oral teaching of the apostles was authoritative. And so was the magisterium comprised at that time of the apostles, with the elders and or bishops under them, with the deacons. Again, during the time of the apostles, there is no sola scriptura. There is no, you know, Christians, uh, you know, hey, give me, the, give me the letters, give me the books, and I, I will read them, and I will study, and I will decide what I think they're teaching. There was no sola scriptura and the right of private judgment. So today, as you mentioned, we want to move forward, and we want to ask the question, Okay, so what about the pattern of authority after the time of the apostles? And uh, I want to give a little bit of my own background and what I sort of sure. w- what my impression was uh, regarding this era. I remember that we uh, and I can't even remember the name of the author, but we uh, did a um, in one of my church history 
classes uh, that I that I took mm-hmm. uh, at a Catholic uh, university, at a master's level. Uh, they they you know handed us a book, and it was called "The History of the World Christian Movement," and that mm-hmm. was probably the the way that I sort of presumed that this all looked. It was a world Christian movement. It was this movement that exploded and more and more people um, adhered to this idea so that there were just more Christians everywhere. I would have never have thought that there was something that was like structure uh, and 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 it was visible and it was like an actual thing. Society. Right. Yeah. It, so I might have thought it was like a um, a fellowship, but not like an ecclesia mm-hmm, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. as we as we understand it and so when i would find things like you're about to point out um i would say well that's an anomaly obviously from everything i know about christianity there's an explanation for why this doesn't fit um you know well, a high ecclesiology gonna, so we're going to come to it through scripture and tradition again but yeah and i understand what you're saying it, it was almost a shocker to me too when i began to realize that, that the church after the apostles, the church that is developing and forming, spreading throughout the then known world, is an actual visible society um, with a structure, with a hierarchy. But, but anyway, we'll get to it. The question again, what about the pattern of authority after the time of the apostles? That's the question we're asking. And we're looking at this three-legged stool. First, of course, then there was the inspired authority of scripture. We begin there again. Both the Old Testament writings and then those of the apostles, as well as some of the apostles' close companions, for instance, Luke. From the beginning, the scriptures, both the Old Testament as well as the apostolic writings, were held by the early Christians to be inspired and authoritative. That is, after the apostles, they were held by them to be inspired and authoritative. Nothing was to be believed that could not be supported by the Holy Scriptures. I want to make that clear, at least implicitly supported by Scripture. And nothing was to be believed that was in conflict with the Holy Scriptures. Um, Around 250 A.D., St. Cyril of Jerusalem, he emphasized the unique authority of the inspired writings in his catechetical lectures. And that's why we are able, as Catholics, to speak of of, um, of the primacy of sacred Scripture. It holds a special position in the sense that it's a written an inspired written record of the divine revelation, okay? Although in the time of Cyril, it would have been a collection of various letters not yet compiled in a book as we understand the New Testament today. Yeah, and not yet complaining, I mean, containing agreement on, on all the books. But listen to what he said in support of the primacy of Scripture. For concerning the divine and holy mysteries of our faith, not even a casual statement must be delivered without the Holy Scriptures. Nor must we be drawn aside by mere plausibility and artifices of speech. Even to me who tell you these things, give not absolute credence unless you receive the proof of these things which I announce from the divine scriptures. For this salvation, which we believe depends not on, which we believe depends not on ingenious reasoning, but on demonstration of the holy scriptures. He's, he's stating very clearly that everything we believe as Christians, everything that we teach, has to be supported from the Holy Scriptures, either explicitly or at least implicitly, something that can be drawn from them. And nothing we teach certainly can contradict what we find in the Holy Word of God. You You know know who that sounds like? Yeah, it sounds exactly like what John Calvin would say, you know, some, what is it, like 1,200 years later. Uh, this statement of, of Cyril's when he says, Even to me who tell you these things, give no credence unless you receive the proof of the things which I announce from the divine mm-hmm. scriptures. He said, mm-hmm. you know, essentially, I don't give any counsel, yeah. any any weight to counsels or anything unless they're in accord with the divine scriptures. The difference, of course, being that Cyril's saying this in the context of a church that every single Christian yeah. is a part and of. And <laughs> also, he's, right? also, he's not speaking of himself as all the bishops gathered together in ecumenical council. No. He's saying, he's saying me, even if I come to you, you know, uh, and I say something, right, test it. Okay, now, it's, you hinted at this a moment ago, more than hint, you stated it, but it's important to keep in mind that the church existed for a long, long time before it had anything approximating a New Testament as we have it, 27 books bound together. Um, it's true that from the beginning, the church possessed the Old Testament scriptures, which it interpreted Christologically. It saw Jesus being preached through the Old Testament as Jesus saw it and preached it to the two on the road to Emmaus. Okay, the, the early church also had the various sayings and stories of Jesus that would have been remembered, would have been treasured, and would have been passed down. 
um, the church began to collect the Gospels and other apostolic writings as they appeared and as they began to be circulated. And by the time of Ignatius and Polycarp in the early 2nd century, there seems to have been wide recognition of at least about three-quarters of what would become the New Testament. But still, here's the question I want to ask. During the 70, 80, 100 years between the day of Pentecost when the church is born and that time when, when your average Christian community out there in the, in the Roman Empire somewhere, in the towns and cities of the Roman Empire, between the time when the church was founded and the time when they would have had something even approximating a New Testament, how did the churches know the teaching of the apostles? You asking me to answer it now as I, as I believe it now or ask me to answer it how I would have answered it then? Because I have a sense of how I would have answered it then. How would you have answered it then? I, I would have said, well, the Holy Spirit was there keeping Christians faithful. Um, Ooh, and that's, sounding like a Catholic. I know, but no, no, I'm yeah. not, Ken. I'm not talking <laughs> about a church. I'm just talking about the Holy Spirit and the lives of the believers, keeping them together in one body. So the Holy Spirit would have been leading each believer individually, and yeah, well, Tarsus I mean, and Jerusalem and Alexandria would have been leading them to to know I the wouldn't same doctrines? Have, I wouldn't have realized as making an argument for the this thing yeah. called a visible church, but that's kind of how I would have thought about it. Yeah, with yeah, that, yeah. But except erase the yeah. idea of a visible church from the picture. It's it's weird to kind of try and get back in that mindset to try and explain. Okay, okay. What from that the was other like side, then let, let me plow forward. Then from the other side, in asking the question, during those 70, 80, 100 years between the time when the church is founded, the day of Pentecost by the Holy Spirit. And that time when Christian communities scattered throughout the Roman Empire would have had anything even closely approximating a New Testament, how did they know the teaching of the apostles? How did they know it? And the answer is, there was the teaching of the apostles as it was preserved in the doctrine, life, and worship of the churches the apostles founded. In other words, what we think of as tradition. In other words, along with the authority of Scripture, which we've talked about, there was also the authority of the oral tradition, the tradition. Now, you and I dealt with tradition uh, in, in quite a bit of detail in parts two, three, and four of this current series. Um, so I would send anybody listening and watching to those episodes, but we need to quickly summarize the high points here, and I'm going to attempt to do that. That is the teaching of the church on tradition. Okay, to begin, in the way that the fathers understood it, Tradition simply referred to what is handed down from the Greek word paradosis, which means to pass on. What is handed down? Now, this would include the apostolic writings, which we refer to then as the written tradition, but it would also include what the apostles handed down, not in writing, but through their preaching, through their example, and by the institutions that they established when they were founding the churches. In other words, when the Catholic Church speaks of apostolic tradition, I want to make this very clear, the church is not saying that somehow, along with the writings of the apostles, we have hidden away in our secret Vatican archives, you know, transcripts or recordings of other sermons that Peter made or Paul made or John or Barnabas or whoever, and, you know, describing other doctrines that they secretly passed down. The church does not mean that. No, what the church is saying when it speaks of tradition is simply that what the apostles taught, the substance of the, of the apostolic teaching can be found in the doctrine, the life, the worship of the post-apostolic church. And here's how Vatican II put it. This living transmission accomplished by the Holy Spirit, there's your Holy Spirit, which we will get back to, is called tradition, since it is distinct from sacred scripture, though closely connected to it. Through tradition, here it is, the church in her doctrine, life, and worship perpetuates and transmits to every generation all that she herself is and all that she believes. In other words, all that the apostles taught them is preserved there in the church. And to, to go to that point that you were saying about how we don't have some like secret archive of sermons uh, where Barnabas and you know, yeah. Paul and, and uh, Bartholomew gave some like secret intel that they didn't actually, you know, whatever. No, actually, yeah. and we're going to get into this a little bit more towards the end of this uh, 
this episode, uh, the church goes out of its way. One of the first battles it fights is over this idea that there are secret things, right, that nobody really knows except for like an inside group mm-hmm. of people. And the church is like, no, no, the gospel is plain and clear. We told every single one of you everything, mm-hmm. right? There's not some secret group. No, this is all plain. If you want to look at, you don't believe us, go look at the church at Thessalonica and ask them. You yeah, know? I'm glad you bring that up because that's what the whole thing with the Gnostics was all about, is that the Gnostics were saying, well, we have secret knowledge that's passed down only to the illuminated and whatnot and all that. And the church's position, as you say, was to say, no, what the apostles taught is public knowledge. It's present in the churches. You can go there to find it. Yeah, great. Thanks for that. So for the church then, and again, this is after the time of the apostles we're talking about today. There was the authority of the written tradition, Scripture, and there was the authority of the unwritten tradition, we refer to as tradition. The written tradition now provided an objective, inspired record of what the the apostolic teaching consisted of. The unwritten tradition, here it is, provided an interpretive key to the meaning of Scripture. And what do we mean by this? Only that, the early churches would have read the letters they received, Matt. They would have read those letters in the light of what they already knew from what the apostles had taught them when they were there with them. They would have read those letters in the light of what they already knew. And because of that, what they already knew, that is the knowledge that they already possessed of the apostolic teaching, would have provided context for them to understand the meaning of what was written in those letters, which of course is natural. You know, if an old friend sends me a letter, you know, I read what is said in the letter, but the context in which I read it, um, I, I read that letter, I read the words, the sentences, the phrases, I read them in the light of everything I already know about that person, and everything I already know provides an interpretive key. It, it, it allows me to understand the meaning of what is being written. This is how the early church read those letters. And that's what we mean when we say that the tradition provided an interpretive key to the meaning of the written tradition. Or to use an analogy, if we want to think of the inspired scripture as the light of God's revelation, inspired light, we can think of the tradition as the lens through which the light comes into focus. There was scripture, there was tradition. Together, um, the early church would have firm knowledge of the teaching of the apostles. And we know that this is clearly how the early church viewed the relationship between Scripture and tradition. There, there's no doubt about it. It's this view that is revealed, again, when St. Irenaeus, writing around 180, in the 180s AD, when he speaks of how the apostles deposited their teaching in the church, like a man, you know, a rich man deposits his money in the bank, and if you want to know the teaching of the apostles, you can go to the church to receive it. That, that image is one that has always meant a lot to me because it is so strikingly different than the way I thought. You know, I just thought of um, the apostles deposited their teaching in the Bible. You know, the, to say that they deposited it in the church, like uh, Matt Swain would take his millions of dollars down to a bank and put it in there. And therefore, if you want Matt's money, well, I can give you his account number and you can just go get it like any any I'm hacker. A, word, I know what I'm doing as soon as this episode is over. <laughs> you're going to get, you're going to get a uh, life lock. I'm going to change some <laughs> anyway, things around. You're going to purchase life. Around. Well, Ken, um, uh, with this, so yeah, but, but if you were a Baptist pastor, wouldn't you have, well, okay, let's not say that you're a Baptist pastor. Let's say you're the general conference, right? You okay. want to, uh, you know, appoint pastors. What are you going to do? You're not going to train people in secret stuff that nobody else is allowed to know, but you are going to find the most important things that you're going to need to be able to tell your congregation, and you're going to train them in them. Right. right. And then appoint you, you know, appoint that person to lead. This is, just, I mean, yeah. this. if you are a, a person who starts a storefront, independent Christian church, you're going to do the same thing when it's time for you to retire and for the next person to come on. Uh, it's It's just... It's the way things are communicated. It's just how yeah. things happen. It's, it's the way people know. And what I'm saying here is that this mindset of Scripture and tradition, it's revealed when we read St. Irenaeus's Against Heresies. In fact, he even says at one point this. He even says, what then, if there should be a dispute over some kind of question? 
Ought we not have recourse to the most ancient churches? I mean, again, ought we not have recourse to the book of Philemon or the second Timothy first? No, he says, ought we not have recourse if there's a dispute to the most ancient churches in which the apostles were, were familiar and draw from them what is clear and certain in regard to that question? You know, and when he says this, he isn't saying you should go to one of the most ancient churches because they'll have good copies of the New Testament. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that, that the apostolic doctrine is known in those churches it's like a rich man puts his money in a bank and you can go there to draw it out. And one more quotation on this because it's this same view again of the relationship between scripture and tradition that is evidenced when Origen writing around 225 AD says this, the teaching of the church has indeed been handed down through an order of succession from the apostles and remains in the churches even to the present time. That alone is to be believed as truth, which is in no way at variance with ecclesiastical and apostolic tradition. And we and, can and go on and on. We, we could, but as you're saying this, it's, it's such a common sense thing that was completely not my way of thinking about things. But yeah. this is exactly how Jesus did it. What does Jesus do? Yeah. If he, you know, he could... Just, you know, give some teachings and write some writings. But to really, to really convert the world, he entrusts people. He appoints, you know, all yeah. people to certain things, yeah. but he appoints specific people to leadership roles. Yeah. And yeah. so and that's, I, that's, that's his, his method of preservation is the method that, you know, Moses used. It's the method that God used in the Davidic line. It's the method that... You know, we see through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it's, we're going to put another person in to carry this on. It's, you know, I it's think how the Bible reason, works. I think the reason that you, in your life before, and that I as a Baptist didn't think this way, too, was because um, I just assumed that the church had gone astray, that the right. ancient church had gone astray and fallen into this terrible, terrible heretical thing called Catholicism. And it had remained there for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And so you could kind of just blow off the whole idea that the Holy Spirit was in the church and the church would have preserved anything, you know, by whatever means. And so it just, it, it drove you to the idea of, hey, well, look, if you can't trust history at all, and I can't trust tradition at all, and I can't trust the church at all, what can I trust? And it, it drives you backwards to right. Scripture alone. But even if you're saying that... Uh and somebody presses you. Okay, so can mm. the whole church fell away? When did it fall away? You're gonna get yeah. you're gonna get two answers more than any others. Well, if well, I'm a Mormon, it fell away about 15 seconds. <laughs> right, as soon as yeah. Uh, yeah, as soon as the last apostle died, but uh, it would have had to fallen away as soon as the first apostle died because all the, you know, it means that there's apostasy going on even as the last apostle is breathing his last breath. But the two get, two dates most often given are 325 or 313 or, you know, whenever it is that Constantine, Constantine. legalizes things or yeah. calls the Council of Nicaea. Well, then you still have to deal with Origen in 225 and Irenaeus in 180 and Ignatius at the and turn one, of the 2nd century. 110, right. saying Catholic stuff constantly. Right, or you have to, again, go back to the idea of um, Paul, you know, founding a church at Ephesus and founding churches everywhere else and telling Timothy to do the same exact thing in the pages of Scripture, and then you have to assume that Paul died and Timothy was like, well, not doing that, <laughs> right? Or, you or I tried, but it failed, yeah. But what does the evidence say? Yeah. I mean, okay, but I got I to gotta put a, a, the kibosh on this tangent right here but, but, so that we can all right. move forward. Okay, let's roll. Okay, the long and short of what we've seen so far then is that for the church— after the apostles, which is our focus today, I'm talking about the church of the second century, the third, the fourth, the fifth, and beyond. Scripture is received as authoritative, and tradition is received as authoritative. In fact, tradition is taken as providing the rule for the correct interpretation of Scripture. I mean, Scripture is binding and authoritative and inspired, but the question, of course, the big question is, what is it teaching? How do we interpret it? And the oral tradition, that is the teaching of the apostles, preserved in the doctrine of the church, the life of the Christian communities, the worship, was seen as providing the correct rule for the right interpretation. Okay, finally we come to 
the third leg of that stool, we also see an authoritative magisterium. Okay, as in the Old Testament, as in the time when the apostles were living, authority for those living after the apostles, it doesn't reside in Scripture alone. It resides in the three-legged stool of Scripture, tradition, and an authoritative magisterium. Okay, now let's dig in, and we have to kind of overlap a bit with last week. As we saw last week, at the beginning, I think this is a good way to say it, at the beginning, the magisterium of the church was the apostles, just flat out, personally commissioned by the Lord Jesus, given his authority and given his spirit, I mean, given his spirit, the apostles were the magisterium. However, as we saw last week, very early, within months, in response to practical needs of a growing body of disciples, the apostles began to exercise the authority of their office by ordaining others to support them in the apostolic work. And first it was the diaconate in Acts chapter 6, as the need arose for those who could manage some of the practical ministerial affairs of the church and free up the apostles to focus their lives on teaching, preaching, and prayer. Um, And then later on, as the apostles began to preach and teach outside Jerusalem and to found churches in Samaria, um, Asia Minor, even Greece, and beyond, the need arose, again a practical need, the need arose for men who could take over the leadership of the apostles when they left to preach elsewhere. And in response to this, we find the apostles exercising, once again, their authority to ordain men in every city to lead and to teach the churches as they departed to preach elsewhere. A few times, these men are referred to as bishops. Most often, they're referred to as elders. And when they finally meet in council in Acts uh, chapter 15, it's always the apostles and the elders, the apostles and the elders. Okay, in other words, to tie this together, based on what you and I can see in the New Testament writings, during the time of the apostles, the church's magisterium consists of the apostles, and then under them, elders, sometimes referred to as bishops, and under both, deacons. And yet, here is something that is very important um, to our discussion as we move forward. Within a very short time, especially as the apostles began to leave this present world, an historical development was taking place, an important historical development. It didn't happen all at once. It was incremental. It was progressive. But over time, the title bishop began to be used to refer to men who had been specifically ordained to succeed the apostles in their office and in their ministry. As successors of the apostles, they would ordain the presbyters and exercise authority over them. In fact, by the end of the second century, there was one bishop in virtually every city with, uh, with presbyters, that is elders, came to be known as priests, priests, So by the end of the second century, there was one bishop in virtually every city with presbyters beneath them and deacons serving under their authority as well. You know, a a transition that that was historical and that appears to have been led by, uh, well, led by the Holy Spirit, I'll say, but led by the, the practical needs of the church. And a natural outgrowth, which we see happening uh, organically in the book of Acts, really from the very beginning, even with the, uh, like as you say, from the development of the diaconate to, uh, you know, the apostles and elders all being there to, you know, Paul talking to Timothy and Titus about, okay, so this is what you got to (laughs) do if you're a, if you're an elder, this is how you got to comport yourself or a bishop. And, you know, this is something that I don't know why I would have had a problem with it because, you know, I might have said, well, prove to me that there's bishops that God says in the New Testament through the inspired writers that there have to be bishops in this and that and the other. And you could prove it. I could say, well, that's not how they treat bishops today. No, of course, that evolves in those first centuries as the church grows. But, you know, at the same time, you can't point back to the pages of the New Testament and say, show me where there are youth pastors in the pages of the New Testament. Yeah, and the, the thing is, as you mentioned, we do see development in the New Testament because we see the apostles responding to the needs of the church to create deacons, and then responding to the needs of the church to create elders slash bishops to rule. And so it kind of makes sense that when the apostles begin to depart this mortal coil, you know, and head off to heaven, that the church would start thinking, well, 
shouldn't there be someone to replace, you know, so it, it, it does kind of make sense. And I can also see it in Paul's letters to Titus and Timothy, because Titus and Timothy are not apostles. They were the uh, sons of, you know, they were, they were Paul's disciples. And yet he begins to say to them, you ordain elders in every city as though they are being elevated somewhat. They're not exactly elders. They, they have his authority now to go in and ordain. But as a Baptist, this is how, how I would have responded, Matt. I, I would have said something like, look, what the apostles wrote down is what we have. This is all we have. And this is what we need to base everything on. Um, and it's clear that in the New Testament, the words elder and bishop are being used interchangeably to refer to the same office. Bishops in the New Testament are not over elders. There is no apostolic succession in the New Testament. There's apostles and then under them, elders slash bishops. And so if we want to base our form of church government on the New Testament, our churches need to be ruled by a simple body of elders or by one elder. And I remember in my Baptist church going through this study with the other, with my associate pastor and with the deacon board, studying, doing a fresh study of, of, of church polity in the New Testament and coming to that conclusion that if we want to be biblical, the church should be run by an elder or by a, a plurality of elders. But definitely... This whole idea that the Catholic Church has, I mean, you know, the implication, of course, was that the development that occurred in the first two centuries of church history was a departure from the example we have in the New Testament. It was unbiblical. It was illegitimate. It was the beginnings of the church going astray. Yeah, and I would have said something very similar. But at the same time, uh, and I was joking about this earlier, but I think it is a point worth reflecting upon uh, Peter and the apostles don't say, "Okay, we are uh, we're getting too busy here. We need to appoint a music minister, and a youth <laughs> pastor, and a Sunday school superintendent, yeah, and a children's pastor." And, I mean, that's the priorities that would have been for you know leadership in in the churches I grew up in. Right, and this is right. a very different look uh, that you see in the pages of the New Testament. So. But see, the difference there, Matt, I'm playing devil's advocate from a Protestant perspective. The, the difference is Protestant churches don't say that the youth pastor role and the music minister role are, 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 um, are God's creation and that they, have no. spe- that they have a special authority, whereas you Catholics are saying that the Holy Spirit a- a actually led in this development such that bishops have an authority that is different than what an el- a simple yeah. elder has. But it is so, weird that those things don't show up in the New Testament. None of those priorities that I just mentioned. Right. None of right. those offices. You'd think that they'd be wanting to reach the youth a little bit better. Well, right? well I mean, according to the, to the most radical wing of the Church of Christ, there's no example of singing in the New Testament, and therefore there should be no music at all. So you, I, I don't think you need a music yeah. minister if you, don't, if you don't have any music. No musical okay. instruments, at least. Okay, but, but compare that worldview, that way of looking at it, uh, uh, comparing that, listen to how Father Francis Sullivan, who, who taught ecclesiology at the Gre- Gregorian in Rome, Catholic priest, how he assesses this development, this historical development, in his book, Magisterium, Teaching Authority in the Catholic Church. If the dating generally accepted for the, letter of, uh, for, for, for the letters of Ignatius of Antioch is correct, then before all the books of the canonical New Testament were written, the threefold hierarchy of one bishop, a college of presbyters, elders, and a number of deacons was already established in Syria and parts of Asia Minor. And by the third quarter of the second century, every church that we have information about, with the exception of Alexandria, had a single bishop. Okay, so he's described the development here, the historical development that we know did occur. But now listen, on the basis of the following facts, that this development took place within so short a time, within the whole church, without any resistance on the part of presbyters or people, that these bishops were accepted as the legitimate successors of the apostles. The conclusion is drawn by the Catholic Church. The conclusion is drawn that this development must have been guided by the Holy Spirit and must have been part of God's design for the church. See, notice the vast difference of perspective. And here's one way that I paint it, or the way I describe it to myself. As a Protestant, I mean, in terms of like a flow chart, Matt, I saw divine authority as flowing from the Father to the Son, 
from the Son to the Apostles, and from the Apostles to their writings, <laughs> to, to their letters, to the Gospels. For me, the church, and you began with this today, for me, the church really was nothing more than local congregations of disciples uh, reading the Bible and doing their level best to conform themselves to what they believed they uh, was taught in it. That's what the church was. Catholics see divine authority. You know, here's the flow chart again. Catholics see divine authority as flowing from the Father to the Son, from the Son to the apostles. Remember those passages? He who receives you receives me. He who receives me receives him who sent me. Father, as thou hast sent me into the world, I also send them into the world. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples. So authority flowing from the Father to the Son, from the Son to the apostles. And then this is how Catholics see it. From the apostles to the church. To a church led by the Holy Spirit to hold fast to the traditions received from the apostles, whether given by word of mouth or in writing, to guard the teaching by the Holy Spirit and to pass it on. And the ability to do this implies some kind of a spirit-led magisterium. You know, and this, as you're rereading that, like every time we prepare for one of these segments, I'm like, I think I know what I'm going to say. And then you actually read it out loud, and I'm like, holy cow. Uh, and the, the thoughts just keep coming. It reminds me of what's said at the beginning of the letter to Hebrews, to, to the Hebrews. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many and various times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Um, and, and so on and so forth. So the fullest way that God chooses to speak to us is through a person. The fullest way that he chooses to speak to us is by investing persons mm-hmm. With authority, those persons then modeling themselves after yeah. the master who sent them know that the fullest way to express themselves is not to leave a book, but to leave a person, and yes, so on the and so forth. Chart, I mean, that is the biblical model that we see: the Father sending the Son with His authority and Spirit. You know, the the at His baptism, remember Jesus, the Spirit coming down upon Him. Jesus selecting apostles rather than writing a book giving them his authority and his spirit and sending them out and the apostles transferring that authority and spirit to the church so that yes, their writings are inspired. Their writings reflect their teaching, but it, it isn't from the father to the son, the son to the apostles, the apostles to their writings, to a book. It's to the church. In fact, in Ephesians chapter four, I've mentioned this before, I think in our series on Sola Scriptura, there's a passage that was really instrumental in my coming to believe that a magisterium must exist. Okay, in this passage, Ephesians 4, you know, Paul's talking about one faith, one baptism, one Lord, all that. He's talking about the unity of the church, and he's talking about the gifts that the Lord Jesus has given to his church in order to create and maintain that unity. And this is what he says, beginning in verse 11. Let me read it and then comment. His gifts were that some should be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the cunning of men, by their craftiness and deceit, just being blown all over the place by every wind of doctrine. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by every joint which is with which it is supplied. When each part is working properly, makes bodily growth and upbuilds itself in love. Okay, Paul's envisioning a church as something living and organic. Christ is the head, the church is the body, the the very life of Jesus is flowing through that body and through all of the ministries that he's given to the body, all the gifts building up that that body in 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 divine unity and in love. And I'm reading this and at a certain point, Matt, it suddenly struck me that the vision that Paul has of the church here, I'll say this bluntly and then I'll explain it. The vision that he has could only exist. It could only work if there was some authoritative 
teaching to which all pastors and teachers were bound. Okay, because in that case, imagine pastors, imagine the church spreading to fill the whole world. And imagine pastors and teachers, elders, presbyters, scattered all over the world. If there's some authoritative body of teaching to which they're all bound, then when they teach, they will be building up the church in unity. That's what they'll be doing because they'll be teaching the same basic body of, 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 of uh, doctrine and morals throughout the world. On the other hand, and this is what really hit me, if the pastors and teachers go out, spread all over the world, and each of them has their Bible, and each of them is studying their Bible, praying, asking for the leading of the Spirit, and deciding for themselves what the doctrines of the faith are, then rather than building up the body of Christ in unity, those pastors and teachers actually become the very forces, the winds of doctrine, the waves of doctrine that Paul says are whipping up the people of God and blowing them all over the place. And I looked at the, I looked at the world that I was a part of and I realized that's exactly what has happened over these 500 years um, since Luther and Calvin, Zwingli and the rest. Now you have pastors and teachers scattered all over the world, each of them deciding for themselves, within the context of whatever denomination they have decided to be the best, you know, to best represent the teaching of, of the New Testament, and teaching contradictory doctrines, and therefore blowing the children of God, whipping up the waves and the winds of doctrine. Now, I, now I don't believe that most of them fit what Paul says here about their craftiness and their cunning and deceitful wiles. There are some of them. But even those that are, that are as, as innocent, innocent as children, as innocent as doves, are still, in effect, blowing the people of God all over the place. Not on purpose, right? They're trying to follow the best that they know. Uh, the realization that got me, and, and I had a bit of that realization as part of my process that you just mentioned, but the one that got me was, okay, um, if they are, you know, each different congregation going off their scriptures that they have, even yeah. if the Bible's not a book yet, they're doing the best that they can, then it would be natural for us to see a multiplicity of opinions on things like baptism or uh, the way that the Lord's Supper should be done um, or everything else, except on all those like key major things, they're all together. And it's not because they all have the same New Testament, at least not yet. What is it that is keeping these people on the same page when it's not like you can just take an afternoon and hop the Mediterranean and go check out Alexandria and make sure that there are doing what they're supposed to be doing. What is keeping these people on the same page, right? Um, and why is it that once we get back to where the Bible is the sole rule of faith, then nobody's on the same page? You made me think of that quotation from Irenaeus that we read a few weeks ago where he says, you know, writing from the south of France, from Gaul, and says, we believe nothing different than they believe in Germany, and the Germans don't believe anything different than they do in Egypt or, you know, in Carthage, or Syria, or Jerusalem, or Constantinople, or Rome. Yeah, how in the world, in the late second century, can St. Irenaeus, in a world where there's no internet, no telephone, no teletype, you know, and barely smoke signals, how can he describe the church as being unified like that? And then, and it was, it was generally speaking so, and yet, as you say, it's kind of a, a, a weird paradox, but the second you switch to Scripture alone, then, then suddenly there is no agreement. There is none. No, you know, in order for the church to be one, in order for the church to have one faith, it cannot be, it simply cannot be every pastor and teacher and his Bible. I mean, there has to be some unified, authoritative body of doctrine, and this implies a unified, authoritative magisterium. It implies the kind of magisterium that could meet in council and decide for the church, decide for the believers, so that Christians who have jobs to work and who have families to take care of and, and for many, many, many centuries couldn't even read at all and are just busy all day long working their jobs so that these Christians could spend their lives putting their faith into practice rather than spending their lives trying to figure out what it is. You know, trying to figure out whether the Baptists are right or the uh, the Albigensians or the Lutherans or whatever. It, it just doesn't make sense. It can't happen. And this is, by the way, we all know, this is what the magisterium did. 
that is at the Council of Jerusalem in AD 49, at the Council of Nicaea in 325, at the Council of Constantinople in 381, at the Councils of Rome, Hippo, and Carthage in 382, 393, 397, 419, at the Council of Chalcedon in 451. That is, this is what the magisterium did. It met in council and it decided for the church. And I, I, I ask sincerely, I ask my Protestant friends, do you think that each Christian decided for himself the issues decided at these councils? I mean, did, 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 did each believer decide for himself whether Gentiles need to be circumcised and keep the customs of Moses in order to be saved, as we saw in Acts 15? Did each Christian really decide for himself whether the, the book of Hebrews is inspired and needs to be included in the New Testament canon? Or whether the Holy Spirit is, is truly a person and the third person of the Trinity? Did each Christian really decide for himself by studying Scripture or, or agree by, by, through the study of Scripture that God exists one in essence, three in personality, that, that there aren't three gods or there, and there isn't one God who simply appears in three modes like the Sabalian said or the modalist said? Is, is this something really that every Christian decided? Is it not the case that the magisterium of the Catholic Church decided these things and that we all accept them? Could the church ever have been one, I guess is the bottom line question. Could the church ever have been one if it had not believed in an authoritative magisterium? If it had been practicing sola scriptura and the right of private judgment from day one? The question kind of answers itself uh, because all you have to do is look around at your own town and ask, you know, how did this church come to be? Well, it was a split off of the church down the street when they did had some disagreement yeah. over, you know, drums and worship. It's, we don't, people who are splitting over less important things than how to interpret scripture uh, all the time. People are splitting, splitting over personality conflicts today. There had to be a stronger glue than what we have right now in contemporary society and an individualistic approach to all this to have held the early church together because there were some strong personalities back then too. There were some disputes back then too. Yeah. And it, it is, I mean, you brought this up a moment ago and it's still striking me. It, it is a miracle when you, when you think about it, that there could be essentially one church in the first century, the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth. I mean, these are hundreds, we're talking about centuries. We're talking about centuries. And there were many heretical movements, the Marcionites, the Montanists, the Novatians, the Ebionites, the Apollonians. There were all kinds of heretical movements that we know about, the Gnostics that arose during that time, seeking to lead people astray, and that the church somehow was able to answer and stay together and remain one church. It really is, it, it's a miracle, given what people divide over now within the evangelical Protestant communities. You know, and if they're going to divide over the color of the carpet or whether there should be drums, then they're certainly going to divide when they don't agree on the on the form of church government that the church should have, or on baptism, or on the Eucharist, or on whether salvation can be lost or not. They're certainly going to divide over that. Okay, we're going to pick up this thread again next week, Matt, and, and we're going to move forward and uh, eventually, two weeks from now, move into the papacy, the old issue of Peter and the papacy. But I, I want to close just by reading, and we can reflect on it, a passage from, again, the great J.N.D. Kelly in his book, Early Christian Doctrines. He's an Anglican, but he describes the early church's views on this matter. Listen to what he says. Where in practice was this apostolic testimony and tradition to be found? The most obvious answer was that the apostles had committed it orally to the church where it had been handed down from generation to generation. Unlike the alleged secret traditions of the Gnostics, it was entirely public and open, having been entrusted by the apostles to their successors and by these in turn to those who followed them, and was visible in the church for all who cared to look for it. The identity of the oral tradition was guaranteed by the unbroken succession of bishops in the great seas going back lineally to the apostles, an additional safeguard is supplied by the Holy Spirit, for the message committed was to the church, and the church is the home of the Spirit. You're telling me <laughs> that Timothy took Paul's advice 
when he said, you know, what I've told you in the presence of many witnesses, commit to others who can then do the same to other people. You're telling me that Timothy wasn't the only person he told that to, or that Peter no. told that to, or that Matthias told that to, or that Jude or any, I mean, all this means is that what Jesus told the apostles to do and what the apostles told other people to do, they actually did, which is a wild concept, I know. But again, also that it's not a secret. This is not... And when you read the records, when you read Ignatius of Antioch, it's not like Ignatius is saying, let me tell you a little secret that we only talk about in the yeah. board meetings uh, when you plebeians aren't around. No, he's he's speaking openly about all this like everybody knows about it. It's wild. Yeah, I feel like we could have just read this passage from J&D Kelly and then sort of expanded on every line because he ends up bringing in the Gnostics. He ends up bringing in that 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 point that you made earlier that it wasn't a, a secret knowledge passed down, but it was public. He ends up saying that it was visible in the churches, which reminds me again of what, what Irenaeus said about you can go to the church to get it. You know, if, if you need the truth, you can go there. Okay, this is the view that the church had. This is the view of the church that can be found everywhere in the writings of the early church. This is the view. And, and this is why I have to say that St. John Henry Newman was correct when he said that it was, quote, easy to show that the early church was not Protestant. I mean, I, I say that <laughs> I was a Protestant for 20 years. I loved my faith as a Protestant. I love those who are Protestants now. And, and, and I still have to say it. Newman was right. It's, it's rather easy to show that the early church was not Protestant. Yeah. It wasn't a Baptist church. It wasn't a Presbyterian church. It wasn't a Lutheran church. It wasn't a United Church of Christ. It wasn't anything like that. It was a church that held to the authority of Scripture, tradition, and an authoritative magisterium. And that's what held it together and made it one church. And by apostolic, they didn't mean um, we preach the same kinds of things that they preach in the book of Acts. It was, no, we took what they trusted to those guys who trusted it to the next round of Christians mm -hmm. who trusted it the next round, and we preserved it. And that's what the church, the Catholic church, and actually what the Orthodox church means when they talk yeah. about apostolic. So, yeah, it's it's a lot. And uh, we still haven't talked about the Pope, uh, <laughs> and we're not going to talk about him just yet. we got another episode before we get to the papacy. But in the meantime, if you have questions or thoughts about anything that we've discussed today, um, maybe you are at some point on the continuum where Ken and I were, uh, you know, and hopefully we've been fairly kind to our former selves because I hate to be mean to me, even old me. But uh, give us a give us a line, hit us with a note. Uh, subscribe to this on our YouTube channel. Subscribe to on the journey and all the other coming home network content. Come visit us at community.chnetwork.org and get involved there in the conversation. We would love to hear from you, Ken. Thank you again as always. We'll talk to you next week. Yes, you will. Hopefully, Lord willing.